great if you can find the passage that we just had read uh, just before Mary from Catherine in some way. Uh, if you need a Bible and you want to do that, you can wave your hand and someone will give you one. Uh, it should hopefully have been offered one as you came in. Or you can look on your phone as well. There's this great app called Version that enables you to have the Bible there. And in terms of things to draw, if you want to have something to draw, something we love to do here at Holy Trinity, uh, just uh, not everyone wants to just listen. Some people want to use their sort of minds to do something else so that they pay attention a bit better. Uh, The thing I'd love you to draw, please, I'd love you to draw someone looking mistrusting and ungrateful. So like a face. You managed to do that. And perhaps particularly like draw them before looking really glad and satisfied. And just see if you can work out the things that change in someone's face. And the other thing, can you draw like every fruit you can imagine? Just all the beautiful, delicious things that are there to eat. And I think that will help us get into what is going on in the passage today. So uh, let's pray as we've got Jesus in front of us, his word, and uh, telling us of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us and that your love speaks light into our darkness and confusion. Please, will we not resist you this morning to enable each of us to listen to what you are saying to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Which paradise did we lose? It's a really serious debate at the moment in our society because it gets to the heart of what we can expect about being human, what we should hope for, what we're aiming for. One quite troubling branch of this debate has been seriously examining the idea of anti-natalism. It says that it's actually morally evil to perpetuate the species because to do so destroys the planet and increases suffering. You can see people waving placards now saying, normalise antinatalism. We should all stop having children so that in the end we die out. That is a real thing that some people are advocating as the way to restore paradise. Another says everything was great in the 50s before the Beatles and, you know, all that in the 60s. That's, that's another thing people say. If only we could get back to the 50s, then everything would be paradise. Uh, Woody Allen's wistful Midnight in Paris film follows Owen Wilson, a writer from New York, uh, Gill, I think is his name, seeing successive generations going back in time in one cafe. I think it might even be the Moulin Rouge, I'm, I'm not sure, or something. Uh, or it might be Montmartre or something, I've forgotten. But uh, the key thing is, every generation he speaks to, like Gertrude Stein and Picasso and then uh, Toulouse Trek and all those people, each think the generation before them was when everything was great. And the whole point is, everyone always looks back and says, oh, that was paradise. And now we've lost it. Plenty of that around as well. Some people look back for paradise. Other people look forwards. So Klaus Schwab and, uh, you know, all the things saying the mind, your mind is going to be able to order things from Amazon and anticipate your every need and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Or any episode of Star Trek, if you ever watched it, I've watched like far too much Star Trek. If you have, if you've watched it, there is this kind of subtle like thing saying, All our best future is ahead of us if we can just progress and evolve. Uh, So Bill Gates and Elon Musk are like the patron saints of this view. The goal there is progress towards something. The only thing we can be sure of is it's not here and you mustn't stand in our way. 
to get to whatever it is. That view says we don't know what paradise is because we're working towards it. And usually you're stopping it if you're against us or disagree with us. How we answer the question of what paradise we lost or what paradise we're going towards. It's a variation on something fundamental to being human. What's wrong with the world? Humans themselves, the 60s, the left, the right, not enough science, too much science. So the arguments rage on. This thing will sort it all out. Or at least get us back to how things were. Jesus asks us three words. Where are you? It's the first thing he says to the man and the woman he created to share his eternal divine life. After they decide they're better off without him. This ancient story gives a definitive answer to the paradise we lost and what is wrong with the world. It also explains why human societies keep getting sucked into the next thing and then throwing rocks at everyone who disagrees with them. So first six verses in that passage that Catherine read out. Life without Jesus unleashes chaos. Life without Jesus unleashes chaos. This is one of those stories that most people still know something about, even if it's just the Sistine Chapel or like a painting or some parody. So we're going to focus on the bits that often get missed out from this story. The snake, verse one, which is often the bit people have a problem with, is a serpent, which is a different idea, and the Lord created him. Later in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, we discover this serpent has a name, Lucifer, the shining star, son of the morning. In Ezekiel 28, we discover he was a guardian cherub, a mighty angelic being, visible, not a fat baby. Just by the way, cherubs are not fat babies. That was a weird thing in the Renaissance. They're like mighty, terrifying angels. Everyone basically falls on their face in fear before cherubs. You don't do that with a fat baby. Okay, so it's not that. Uh, He's a guardian cherub, a mighty angelic being. And Ezekiel 28 verse 12 says, You are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. Now, snakes are an important symbol of what this angelic being went on to become. And the visible form that cherubs or cherubim take does seem to vary depending on what they happen to be doing. So it could look like a snake. Snakes aren't evil by this point. You know, it's a good animal. Everything's good that God's created. We say all that because for Adam and Eve to have a conversation with this being was not unwise. Him being really clever, like we say shrewd because we know what's going to happen, but it's just he's really clever. He's been put there to help them to answer any questions they have. So his presence in the garden doesn't contradict Jesus' declaration that all of it's good. Things do start to change when he speaks, though. It's actually just one question and a statement. Those are the only two things he says. What's what's bad about that? First one's kind of window shopping, isn't it? And, you know, did God really say 
can be sceptical or it can be, what, what was that again? What, what was the thing that he said before? I, I was there, but I've just, can you just remind me? Well, this is the moment, as we discover from what he goes on to do, that he lost his place in heaven and decided to set himself up as God. It wouldn't have got anywhere if he hadn't got the humans on board. The humans rule the angels. They serve the humans. He has to get them on board before this rebellion that he's planning is going to go anywhere. And the woman could easily have just called for the Lord God and said, um, just can you, can you deal with this? I'm not quite sure. She could easily have asked Jesus for some means of cutting down the tree if it was proving a problem. It's like, actually, I, I don't really like it being there. Could you just move it, please, so that I don't have to think about it? And then it would all be over and it would all be fine. The tree's presence in the garden is an invitation to trust Jesus. Whatever else they hear, however sensible, intriguing, desirable, mysterious. Paradise is only paradise because they have to trust Jesus to enjoy it. They're learning what freedom is. Freedom to choose him and what he says over not him and not what he says. So the serpent's question and statement are only aimed at one thing, really. They're all about sowing an idea for us that we can't imagine not having. Jesus is not for you. He's keeping the best from you. His rules are unfair. He's hiding the really good stuff. You're better off without him. He just wants to spoil things for you. All of us naturally think that. No one needs to teach us to think that. This move is still one of the saddest, most diabolical things to witness in any relationship. Shakespeare wrote a play about it in Othello. Even Star Wars turns on it. Sorry, last sci-fi reference, I promise. With Darth Vader. Sorry, that's a spoiler. Someone sowing seeds of doubt in someone's mind that the love of their life really wants what's best for them. If the pinnacle of human meaning and purpose is to be married to Jesus in the end, like we saw last week, it's no wonder that the ultimate, the ultimate explanation for what's wrong with everything is our intimacy with Jesus has been fractured, spoiled, compromised, broken. Here's another thing about the story we don't tend to notice. Adam was there the whole time. The woman wasn't on her own. Adam wasn't off somewhere else and then just showed up and said, oh, what's that you got there? Can I have some? Uh, he seems to be there egging her on silently. The woman is genuinely deceived. Um, we, we didn't actually have it read out in the end. It's the last bit of verse 13. When she says the serpent deceived me, she's being truthful. She preserves a degree of innocence through this, contrary to a lot of Christian teaching down the ages, victimising and vilifying women. That thing she says about not touching the tree, okay, Jesus didn't say it, but it's quite a good idea, isn't it? If you're not supposed to eat from it, then not touching it is a good start, isn't it? Like, don't, don't bother, don't go there. Adam's using his wife as a guinea pig. It's like, go on, go on, do it. What, what's going to happen? So he's not willing, he hasn't got the cojones to do it himself. 
He wants to see if she drops dead. And if she doesn't, he's like, all right then. Nom, 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 nom. This is why Adam is the one that Jesus has a go at from this point onwards. He's, sorry, that's not the right way of putting it. This is the one Jesus confronts. That's better. He's the one who's broken the relationship. He's the one who broke the command. Where are you? We have to read this event on the deepest level. Fully aware of everything we've been looking at over the last few weeks in Genesis. I can say that there is now a podcast that you can get to on the website that has all but a few of the Genesis sermons on it. So if you're thinking, I don't know what happened the last few weeks, I wasn't here, I missed it. You can listen online. So it's htbungie.org. Uh, it took me a while yesterday. I'm going to try and have that updated regularly. Podcasts are a lot easier than putting it on the website. So if you want to get a sense of what has been building up over the last weeks, you can go and do that later today. Jesus' word has, up to this point, put all the forces of chaos within boundaries. That's what he does. So there's water above and below the heavens instead of just swirling around everywhere. That's day two. Uh, Then the waters get gathered into seas so that we can actually stand somewhere and do stuff rather than trying to eke out existence on like an island or something, like a float or a raft. Uh, Then the water, again, this symbol of chaos in the Bible, flows from a mountain into rivers to bring refreshment rather than confusion like a flood. Think about the difference between a river, you know, the basis of there being a town here on the Waveney, and a flood. We know the difference between those two things, don't we, in Bungie? When Adam decides to step outside of Jesus' word, he deliberately brings chaos back in to that connection that's been established between heaven and earth. The fruit itself is just fruit. Don't know what it tastes like. Might be an apple, might be something else, might be a pomegranate. But the relationship in which Adam now stands to Jesus is cosmos shattering. That ability we saw he had when he was sort of united, man and woman together in one person, to name things is gone. Adam was that perfect union between ideas and naming things and stuff, physical reality. But now that's gone. Our thoughts don't match the world. Quite the reverse. Adam has stopped looking upwards to heaven for his wisdom. That two-way street is now a closed circle. It's now just one endless, chaotic, never-ending conversation with himself. Don't we feel that? It's just one human saying something to another human. There's no one from outside who can settle it. The argument just rages on and on and on and goes round and round and round. And we try this and then we try that and then we try that again. See if it will work this time when it didn't work last time. When the word from heaven is shut out, all we have is this afterglow of the meaning that we've lost. Before eventually it collapses back down into meaningless mud. So I've got something quickly. This. I can probably stand on it. I'm not going to actually balance. There we go. I'll try. Okay. Right, just imagine that I did that successfully. (laughs) 
And then this happened when I did it again, okay. So this shows that even this is not really up to it. So the point is, that was pretty strong before there was a little structural whatever inside it that made it crush. We know what that's like, don't we? If there's like a little, a little fracture, the whole thing unravels. And that's what's happening in this chapter. That's why it's a small thing, but it, it leads to the whole thing breaking down. Where are you? Life without Jesus unleashes chaos. Next one, verse seven to eight. Life without Jesus brings shame. The connection with heaven and earth is broken. Things are starting to unravel. But they don't die immediately. So was the serpent telling the truth? He says you won't die. Well, well they don't. But they do know something. They do have knowledge. That's happened too. But the thing they know is they're naked. The felt shame bit is actually, it's not there. It just says they knew they were naked. But that's a helpful explanation added to unravel what this moment means. Chaos introduced into a perfect relationship between heaven and earth. Well, it leaves the cosmos and us exposed. Our society is feeling this to a colossal extent. There are people who are literally waking up crying daily about the mess in the environment. Existential dread is normal if anyone sends you a meme. If you don't know what a meme is, ask your grandkids or something. Like, you know, or, or I don't know, maybe you do. There's a song at the moment by Liz Lawrence called None of My Friends Are Okay. Chorus is, I'm watching you fade. You're watching me fade. I'm watching you fade. Our existence is one of constantly and futilely attempting to cover up, to undo that sense of being caught out, of being ashamed of what we want and who we really are. One of the most tragic things about the coming out narrative, being offered as a kind of gospel for all kinds of new identities, is in the end it does nothing for shame. It's clothing that we make for ourselves. And we're constantly afraid someone will come along and see through it, not using our pronouns or expecting us to be different from how we want to be. Our vision for who we are and who we're going to be doesn't come from heaven anymore. We have to look within to find it. And all we really see is nakedness, naked lust, naked ambition, naked anxiety, naked fear, naked selfishness, naked neediness, naked greed. It is incredible the industry and technology that Adam and the woman show when they realise they're naked. They invent sewing. If you've ever wondered where sewing is, it is the first human skill recorded. So if you're sewing, you're doing what Adam and Eve did. Isn't that incredible? That right there is the iPhone, universities, critical race theory, wind farms. We'll solve all the problems of the world with science. I've got an app for that. 
ChatGPT can tell you the meaning of life. Again, if you don't know what that is, I'm sure someone sent it to you. It's like, you know, internet, program, algorithm. Tell me the meaning of life. It will give you an answer. Guarantee. Where are you? The clothes don't work. When God shows up, they hide. That's all human solutions to this problem can do. They only ever hide. The chaos is inside us. We can't take it out. We can't make peace with it. We can't even really hide it. Do you notice they don't waltz up saying, look at these clothes, Jesus, aren't they great? They run and hide when he shows up. They end up using the things he's created, not their stuff. The trees in the garden to do what they were trying to do with their clothes. It's the same now. It's the best the green movement ever gets without Jesus. We end up celebrating, even worshipping the stuff that he's made and trying to use it and preserve it as it is to hide our shame. Life without Jesus unleashes chaos. Life without Jesus brings shame. And then lastly, more briefly, Jesus reveals life without him is death. Jesus reveals life without him is death. So that's verse 9 to 13. Verse 8, it says something about cool evening breezes. Let me tell you what it says in Hebrew. When the voice of the Lord God was walking in the spirit of the day. Jesus hasn't changed. This is the first most explicit verse about the eternal life of the Trinity in the Bible after hints in Genesis 1. Jesus is still the voice of the Father and everywhere he goes, he brings the refreshing wind, the breath, the life of the Spirit, like the light of that first day. And when Jesus comes with that light, the light exposes. Jesus' response to their chaos and shame is not immediately to drive it out, or to punish it, or even to heal it. There's the question again that we've had all the way through. Where are you? Jesus doesn't change. So his unchanging love begins by asking us to see what we really are. He knows where they are, but they don't. They're hiding. They want to be away from him. They want to be left alone. And he asks, where are you? How's that working out for you? How is it making up your own way of being, pursuing your own version of world peace and living your best life, getting wrapped up in ourselves and our families, only to be crushingly bereaved when death and selfishness eventually wears it all down? We will not be able to hear Jesus as good news until we seriously answer his question here. And the first humans do what humans have been doing with that question ever since. Do you see that? I heard you, Adam says. That's true. So I hid. That's true. I was afraid because I was naked. Also true. There's so much suffering, God. You won't let me have what I want. The life you asked me to live is too hard. Church isn't doing it for me. I'm busy. That's all true. But it's not really where we are, is it? So the grace 
keeps coming from Jesus. He doesn't deny Adam's fear or reason for hiding. He asks, who told us? Why do we see things that way? What makes us afraid of him? And again, not because he doesn't know, but because he wants us to see. He helps us get to the heart of it. He says, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? He helps us realise the problem. And at that point, Adam could have said, yeah, I have. You, You caught me. I'm sorry. Can you forgive me, please? Perhaps Jesus would have died right there and sorted it out. And we wouldn't have had all the thousands of years of human pain and suffering since then. But the chaos is in them now. So what does Adam say? Actually, it was her fault. And you gave her to me. So really, it's your fault. Now, the woman's truthful. She doesn't blame Jesus. The whole Bible is Jesus gently prizing our minds away from these mental fig leaves. This way that all of us do naturally must die. Jesus' light will destroy darkness, but he's already shown us with that creation of Adam and Eve how the darkness and the consequence is going to fall on him, not on us. There is good news if you'll hold on for next week. I know it's bleak today. Life without Jesus unleashes chaos. Life without Jesus brings shame. And Jesus reveals life without him as death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is hard for us to hear because our minds are hardwired not to trust you when you speak. So please, would you be gracious to us through your son? Would you shine light on the dark corners of our life so that we can be healed and saved in Jesus' name? Amen.